to Tea Tonic and Toxin, a book club and podcast for anyone who wants to explore the best mysteries and thrillers ever written. I'm your host, Sarah Harrison. And I'm your host, Carolyn Daughters. Pour yourself a cup of tea, a gin and tonic, but not a toxin, and join us on a journey through 19th and 20th century mysteries and thrillers, every one of them a game changer. Carolyn, Sarah, I'm so excited about our episode today. I am as well. This is a really cool one. Yeah, it's a super special feature with Gary Braver. Yes, who uh, just released, or is about to release, excuse me, uh, a new book, Rumor of Evil. Right. <laughs> yeah, Gary, thanks so much for joining us today. I want to just, um, if our audience hasn't... Uh, been introduced to you yet I want to introduce you a little bit here you are the award-winning international best-selling author of nine critically acclaimed medical thrillers and mysteries Gary's novels have been celebrated for their high concepts careful craftsmanship well-rounded characters and page-turning momentum your novel flashback which received a starred review in Publishers Weekly, is the only thriller to have won a Massachusetts Book Award for fiction. In your previous book, Choose Me, which you co-authored with Tess Gerritsen, was a number one bestseller on Kindle and a bestseller in several foreign countries. Under your own name, Gary Goshgarian, you're an award-winning professor emeritus of English at Northeastern University, where you taught fiction writing, science fiction, horror fiction and bestsellers. I want to make sure we get to some of those questions in the interview. You've also taught fiction writing workshops throughout the United States and Europe and founded the London Writers Workshop. You are the author of six popular college writing textbooks and you hold a bachelor's of science degree in physics. I want to talk about that too. From Worcester? Polytechnic <laughs> Institute. Worcester. 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 Sorry, everyone. <laughs> and an MA in English from the University of Connecticut and a PhD in English from the University of Wisconsin. You live in Arlington, Massachusetts with your family. If you want to learn more about Gary and his novels, visit GaryBraver.com. Gary, welcome. Welcome. We're over the top excited you, to Carol, have you. Nice to be with you. Yeah. Um, so... We want um, to introduce this book and, and sort of use it as sort of a launching pad for a number of questions about you, about your um, your writing, about your teaching, and in particular about Rumor of Evil, which is released the 10th of October. Is that correct? Yes, in a couple of three days. Yeah. In, yeah. in just, just a few days here. So um, I'll, I'll read a short yeah. summary of this book. So... And just listeners know, we're not going to spoil anything. You want to get this book. You want to read this book. And you're going to want to see what happens at the end. It's it's quite, quite interesting. This is a summary here. Detectives Kirk Lucian and Mandy Wing are charged with investigating a reported suicide of a Cambridge, Massachusetts woman in her backyard on the anniversary of her young son's death. After further investigation, the hanging appears staged. Once Kirk and Mandy's suspicions are confirmed, they make a list of suspects. Clues begin to connect the recent murder to the decades-old mysterious death of a beautiful 16-year-old Romany exchange student who perished when a treehouse she was asleep in caught fire. The girl, Vadima Lupescu, I'm probably mis mis uh, speaking there, had done <laughs> odd <you> things, <laughs> had done odd things among her American peers that stirred up prejudices and suspicions, leading to her brutal death and cover-up. As Kirk and Mandy investigate the bizarre rumors that Vadima had gypsy powers and put curses on those around her, they discover a cauldron of dark secrets. Will they uncover the true cause of this tangled web of deaths and horrors before it spirals out of control? It's a good question. <clears throat> uh, so one of the things, Gary, thanks so much for coming. One of the things that really interested us um, kind of to get started, and I wouldn't have necessarily known this backstory um, uh, just from reading the book, uh, but you were researching the Slenderman case prior to this, weren't you? Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Um, 
there was going to, I, I knew that there would be two layers in his book, the ongoing investigation of a woman who was found hanging in the opening scene of the novel. And I wanted to be a, there be a cold case which would connect to it um, from 20 years ago. Uh, and as any crime writer, uh, novelist, um, I have a file of bizarre, disturbing crimes in real life, uh, just in case I need something to stimulate my imagination. And it was that case of the, of the Slender Man in 2014 out of Waukesha, Wisconsin. And my two 12-year-old girls lured another 12-year-old girlfriend into the woods and stabbed her 19 times. Um, she survived, and the girls are still, the attackers are still in psychiatric institutions. Um, and, and that was disturbing. I wanted to know what of the adolescent mindset would lead one, these two girls to do this. Um, the motives are never clear. They're always irrational. But the reasons they gave to the police was that they were afraid that an internet cartoon faceless humanoid in a, mm -hmm. uh, stretched out in a long black suit and white shirt, Slender Man, would kill their families if they didn't make this sacrifice. Um, and that's completely bizarre. I mean, if you, if you, kids have believed stuff that is actually not in tune with the rest of us in reality. Um, and I was fascinated, but of course, you're not going to get a, mo a clear motive why these kids did this from police and the mm -hmm. report. So I started re uh, researching um, one of the scourges of American adolescence is bullying. And um, I found that there are profiles of both bullies as well as the bullied. Uh, the bully is usually a male or female who's kind of an alpha kid who um, wants to appear superior, smarter than anyone else. Um, it's somewhat aggressive. He or she is somewhat aggressive or they have a bad temper. Oftentimes they come from broken homes and they're getting back at, at people who have bothered them. And their victims are always somebody who is different and someone who physically may be overweight or underweight, tall and gangly or have a limp or the behavior is kind of odd. Um, they are shy and inward. They dress kind of funny, they have a lift, or they have an accent, or if they're from a different demographic, the normal kids, and ultimately, they're the outsider. So, I needed to have, as a backstory, I wanted to have adolescents, uh, a little older than the 12-year-olds from Waukesha, mm -hmm. and I wanted them to pick on almost an archetypal outsider. So, um, as you were summarizing, as in what you were summarizing, uh, I made the exchange student, a female from um, a rural pig farm in Slovakia. She's a Romani extraction, or Roma, the plant is known as. And um, she arrives uh, with an accent and really odd kind of Europe, Eastern European curls and her, her braids in her hair and gets, um, gets funky, you know, uncool clothes. Um, and... Um, she is. She does some odd things, like she takes off her shoes when she walks into the house, or she stands up when the teacher walks into the room. All these kinds of things. But in any case, the, the host teenager and the other the other adolescents that she is classmates with at the school she goes to um, just outside of where I live in Lexington, Massachusetts, an affluent community. They think it's kind of cool. They're going to Americanize her. So they take her to the mall, they get, get her new outfits, and they get rid of those braids, and uh, they give her a cool nickname, Lulu. And um, things go well, um, and there's a pizza party where they ask you, what do you do in your, in your spare time when you're not slaughtering pigs? Um, she's like, read palms. And so she did a little palm reading. And then she kind of freaks out looking at the palm of one person's hand, and blasts out of the party and disappears. And then a few days later, bad things start happening to her friends and family of her friends. And that gets the rumors flying, really nasty rumors about Romany. Uh, aren't they really gypsies? And didn't gypsies uh, start the Black Plague, you know, centuries ago? And don't they drink the blood of Christian babies? And they created <laughs> Satan? And, uh, and they're really witches in disguise? So all of that. 
And that connects to the terrible fire she dies in one Halloween night, of course, Halloween night, course. Uh, uh, in a treehouse that is in the backyard of the, the host family's um, uh, home. Uh-huh. And that's so that's that's the backstory. But so she is the ultimate outsider. For me, she was a good outsider to have as, as a victim of the bullies. Yeah. Was that true in the Slenderman case? Was the stabbing related to sort of outsiderism or was it too hard to tell? That, that, that's a good question. I think the girl they picked on um, was a little bit too pretty for them. Mm-hmm. And she's probably very smart in class and got a lot of attention. So she became the victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they decided who the victim was. Slenderman didn't say, go get, you know, Judy or whatever. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so they picked on someone that they were bothered by. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, it's like, like a conspiracy theory as we hear today. You build up all these kind of phony myths about this person and yeah justifies you going after them yeah yeah and so i was reading up on slender man in preparation for this conversation and um some uh individuals were calling it a folia dough where these two girls were sort of sharing this um madness between each other and sort of amping up their madness and i i don't see that per se in in rumor of evil but i do see how uh, you know, when one of these girls in this clique start talking about the outsider Lulu, how, um, you know, you get another little step on the ladder where, you know, they're at this party and she talks about slaughtering pigs. Have you yourself ever slaughtered a pig? <laughs> and then it goes, you know, a step further where she starts, you know, reading palms. And so how they can sort of feed into each other, all of these yeah. sort of... Um, comments start building upon each other and they they sort of elevate you know the the groups the group exactly. think of what is happening exactly group think mob think exactly yes yes yeah um there's no way i wanted to make, make these kids insane i mean insanity that's cheating that's not a very interesting <laughs> detective novel oh it was, he or she was crazy okay yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's there's got to be method to the alleged madness and I don't think bad people get up and look in the morning mirror and say, there is the face of evil. <laughs> There's always a sweet smelling reason or sweet smelling reasons why they do the bad things. Um, they were disadvantaged, unlike the privileged kids. They came from lousy home life. Um, they may have been at odds with uh, the law, um, with society, with um, other kids, with with nature, they may have an impairment of some sort. Uh, and so they they justify getting back somehow, making up for those deficits and those uh, disappointments in life. Yeah. So in this case here, it was work, but I tried to have each of the actually six or seven potential suspects have a convincing to them reason why this girl has to die. Yeah, yeah, and and that was kind of fun, but it was you know sometimes it was work and trying to come up with them. <laughs> I got to Christie with you know Orient Murder and the Orient Express. They all all had one good reason. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was interesting to me too, and and this is kind of a general question on writing, but how how you kind of get to these different voices and all of these different demographics. I mean, you have this group of best girlfriends you know how did you how did you try and get the voice do you have like daughters that age or how how did you get in their heads or just just to springboard off that like quickly so you have all of these different characters who speak so the dialogue of each of them and then also you have this third person close which is on uh the main detective and then you also have uh, another character who tells her story in narrative form. So there's right. all these sort of incarnations of voice. Right, right. Um, yeah, the uh, the first person diary-like form of one of the characters um, is uh, first person is always very intimate with the reader. The reader gets to know this character and his or her mindset. Um, and what gave me the the voices um, for the kids is uh, the fact that I was a parent, my wife and I are a parent to two boys who are now adults and they passed through teenagehood and I heard them talk and I heard their, their, their girlfriends um, talk 
And actually, I've been teaching college for over 45 years, and freshmen are not that much older than these 16-year-olds. Yeah, and true. so I'm, I'm hearing still teeny bopper talk, even though you know they're 18 or, or 20. And so uh, I did, um, on, on some psychic level, uh, keep in mind some of the vocabulary, the delivery, uh, and I... It's like any writer, you're constantly writing, even though you haven't got your tape recorder on, you have a three by five, but you're always filing way interesting way that people say things or how they dress or how they deport themselves. So I think that was part of it. Um, I'm very absorbent of these things, constantly looking for fresh dialogue, fresh way of people say things. So, um, and, and also the exposure to all the kids I've had experience with over these all these years you know so i think that was probably why why they kind of came to me kind of easily oh that's cool that's very cool and something that i really like in this book is how we learn a lot about these two detectives they're they're newly partnered um, which, you know, is a nice way for us to get, for the reader to get to know two different people. It's, it's not as if they've been partners for the last 10 years. They're, they've been partners, I think, two weeks. And yeah. we, we get to see, uh, like, who, who they are, what makes them tick, why they are the way they are, because they're sort of, you know, bit by bit informing the other, you know, just to, to get to know each other. And, right they start off maybe a little bit scrappy and you know feeling like maybe we're not the best fit in the world and at the by the end of the story we're thinking okay they are very different people but maybe they're going to do quite well together as a team so i mean what are what are your thoughts um you know i think this is important to you i think um why is the detective not just the detective work that's really important in a story it pulls readers in we, we need to know about these people okay right um in every detective novel, and in fact, most any kind of novel, any genre, there are two quests. The outer quest for cops who laid that body in the opening scene. Then there's the inner quest, the personal baggage. And to endear the reader to the detectives, you have to give them some demons. Um, for Kirk Lucian, uh, he and you know, a his and Olivia's daughter died a year and a half ago. She was a hit and run victim. And I'm never going to solve that crime. That's always going to, in the series, that's going to be an open wound. But it sent him in such a deep sunk uh, of, of, of grief and loss, and particularly um, Kirk, that he could not attend to Olivia's needs. And so they separated. And this is, this is a high statistic. I, I did some research on that too. Parents who lose kids, they end up, Divorced. They just don't want to be in the same space that reminds them of the of their loss and their grief. So I had them break up, and I give Kirk the quest. I want to get back to Olivia. I'm crazy about her. I want to get back. And so, and I made her someone who's not dated anyone but Kirk. So she's been 22 plus years. So she goes out and dates another guy. Mandy, I made her a woman who's married to a woman, and they have a child. And at the end of the book, she is pregnant by artificial insemination. So in the following book, which is already done, she has a child. Mm -hmm. So she is a, she's impulsive, but she's very smart. Did very well in the academy exams. And so she was assigned to Kirk to keep her off the rails, on the rails and not go flying and doing some, you know, the stuff that's a little wild. And she has her baggage, part of her baggage, is not that just that she is a female in a in a uh, heterosexual male profession of police force, but her mother was raped, and she's a product of that rape. And her father, she never knew biological father. He went off and died in prison. So she never had a mother who mothered, and she joined the force because she wanted to protect women against men who abuse or kill them. So she is half talk to go after guys who hurt women. And so he's a little impulsive, you know, you got to get a seemingly bad nail. He did it, you know, and so Kirk says, well, we don't have all the evidence. Mm -hmm. So they work well together. In the next book, um, Kirk, having been brought up by uh, a very 
a, a loving English teacher constantly correcting his English. And I give Mandy some bad English, you know, he's a double negative, and he's constantly correcting me, which is kind of a, a, a good comic relief in some of these tougher scenes. But I think they work okay together, and the, the next one's done, and I'm halfway through the, the, the third in the series. So, uh, And I'm getting to know them better, and, and I'm very fond of them. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. That was, um, I know this was described in part as a police procedural, um, as a subgenre, which, you know, for those of folks that are new to our book club, we haven't got, that hasn't been developed yet. We're still, I think we are doing our first, well, I thought Perry Mason was going to be like a courtroom drama, but then they never got into court. (laughs) So we haven't got to police procedural yet in the development of the mystery, but I was wondering, you had so many details in there, um, just very like in their head police work how did you get all of that did you have to follow police around do you know a lot of police yeah um a couple of things um northeastern university has a a very active criminal justice department and um cops love to talk shop um particularly if it's yeah, going to be in a book that doesn't involve them. And so <laughs> I, 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 I did, I did consult a few police, and also online uh, the kind of quasi legal stuff you can find out about. Like you know, you need a warrant for someone's cell phone, uh, and when can you not have to produce a warrant to get somebody's cell phone? And so that stuff, and this was not available to police procedural novels 30 years ago mm-hmm. you have to you know you know corner a cop or you know a lawyer or go find something in the archives so that that kind of worked uh, both the having google is the best assistant we've ever had <laughs> as well as real live cops and, and and so i got some information there yeah that's cool that's you... interesting no go ahead i'm gonna say some of the interesting stuff um, you get from police um, that's not so much used in this novel, but in a couple of other novels where I've had um, homicide detectives. Um, I remember one asking one guy, a homicide detective in a nearby town here, and you see some of this, the worst stuff, this side of you know, war zones. And it, make, it must make you sick about, and sick with cynicism about the human race. And I said, how do you not go home and braid a noose? And he said, every six months. And I said, now, how do you sit with your family at night and you know, have, a, have a meal? He said, every six months, well, we're in trouble. We just have a counseling with psychiatrists because, hmm. you know, there is a, a paramilitary quality about police. Don't talk to the people next door they borrowed your lawnmower from. They talk to only blue. You know, blue talks to blue. Or the psychiatrists who are the third person neutral. So so there's a lot of bottled up stuff in there. And uh, uh, the incidence of police suicides and police attempted suicides mm-hmm. is very high. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Soldiers coming back from the war. <laughs> yeah, for the same reasons. Yeah. I'm sorry, I mean that you, you take a divergent here, but <laughs> No, no, that's perfect. It's 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 so interesting how you can kind of get into all of these different various heads and yeah. you know yeah. and do it convincingly thank you thank you yeah. from a from a sort of police procedural standpoint in what ways uh do google and security cameras and cell phones complicate the storytelling because we have so much information and so much data it's changed the way i think mysteries are now written Absolutely, absolutely. And when you're writing these kinds of things, I mean, there are no secrets on the internet anymore. You can find anything you want about anybody. They probably can put a social security number in to get, you know. I, um, in the old days, if you were looking for, if you were being pursued by somebody, you had to find a telephone booth. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and, and in the new days, you can trace where people are with their phones. So that is good detection in a sense, you know, aided by the electronics, uh, the digital world. So it's, it's sometimes a bit of a challenge. What if you want to keep some things secret? You know, so what I'm, what we're doing now is buying, uh, those, uh, throwaway cell phones. You just make one call and you ditch it. And so you can, that kind of stuff. Um, but it is, it, it is a, uh, it is a challenge. Um, 
um, some of my older books, I, again, I was looking for some guy, I had a guy trying to make telephone calls. He didn't have a cell phone, pre-cell phone days. Mm-hmm. And he was driving all over town and looking for a, a box <laughs> or, or a restaurant. <laughs> <with that. laughs> Got a few quarters and yeah. mm-hmm. so it is. Um, so it, it does make a different kind of challenges. Uh, but also, um, you could find stuff, cops could find stuff very fast. But you don't want to have them find all the interesting stuff, the important stuff, right early on in the book. You know, so you have to <laughs> sure. kind of, you know, straight out. <laughs> a very short novel. Sure. Like in, in this book. You have the bad guy on page seven. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, in this book, we we don't know right out of the gate that there's a connection between this modern day crime and this past crime. And so, you know, Correct. it takes some time and police work. And, you know, introspection, you know, or, 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 you know, the detective has to go off and think, okay, is, is this possible? Is this happening? And, and so forth. And so, yeah, I, I think it's, as you say, more interesting to have that sort of, you know, unravel steadily throughout the book instead of we have this bulk of information on, on page seven. Yeah. And right, exactly. Exactly. Thinking about how you kind of interwove the two stories, um, I read something you said about the difference between a thriller and a mystery, where a mystery is trying to solve a puzzle, but a thriller is driven by dread. And and to me, reading this, it feels like you interwove two, both of those <laughs> together. Yeah. As I'm reading the story from the past, I have this sense of dread in my stomach. And it's like, <laughs> it's very hard to read because of the dread and am and I'm a baby. But <laughs> then the mystery, the puzzle solving I, I get really into yeah, yeah, is yeah. is that intentional or tell me about those that yeah. way you split that up. Yeah, it's intentional. I mean in, in many ways the these are hybrid novels. I mean in the earlier books I always had a, a murder mystery with a thriller wrapped around it. Mm-hmm. A who done it, and then you know, and then once you find that, uh oh, there's an, oh my god moment. I hope it doesn't happen to my loved one. Um, yeah, that's uh, there. There is that dread uh, factor, but it really is. I mean, the the engine pulling this along really is puzzle solving. You know, putting together clues and logic and nabbing. But of course, there's so much that's hidden because it's 20 years ago or 19 years ago in the backstory, and how is that mm-hmm. connected? Um, so the um, um, the dread is not so much what's going to happen to the two protagonists, uh, not in this novel, but mm-hmm. the next novel, the dread gets close to home with um, uh, with Kirk and, and Olivia. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's there are other people out there from the past whose lives may be in danger. That's mm-hmm. all I'll say. I'll give you the answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's dread for somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the book is filled with literary references, which I love. You probably loved as well, Sarah. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the poem, The Snowman, and this idea of having uh, a heart and a mind of snow? Yeah, that's a, the Wallace Stevens, a snowman. Uh, it is a very difficult poem to kind of understand. If you ever try to read it, it really, you know, I don't know what he's saying the first time through it to. Um, but you, you you have to have a winter mind um, to do something like that. To have a have a, 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 a an icy mind, to not feel for another person. So it really is a, a kind of a frozen lack of empathy, mm-hmm. or empathy that is frozen. Um, essentially, the total heartlessness. Um, and um, it's it always in some verbal form or another. When police look at a dead body, they must have that feeling who could do this kind of thing? I mean, it's just, you see this in the news. I see this every day with what's going on in Ukraine. How could they, <laughs> how could Putin be a, such a snowman and do this right. and justify? I mean, you know, um, so that is, that is the, the, the broader message from the Wallace Stevens poem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Along those lines, I'm, I'm wondering, we, talked about how it can be tough for police the way it feels like being a soldier and you know you may need to seek therapy there's so much baggage um does any of that rub off on you as a writer as you're trying to research you know some sort of grotesque killing or get into some somebody's psychology yeah i mean it 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 is disturbing on some level but in a sense i'm i'm looking for stuff that i can imagine from um that i can 
warm up with good people in it and, and still maintain a kind of a sense of balance that there's good as well as evil. But it's always about justice, you know, prevailing at the almost always about justice prevailing at the end. Um, and so it's, uh, it, it's, uh, um, you have to, you have to compartmentalize the horrors, um, of what you may be researching. And so that's what I did in this case here. Thankfully, that, that little 12 year old girl survived. I mean, she was mm-hmm. stabbed like, you know, awful. And, but, and I don't know what her condition is in that, that Slender Man case. But, um, and those two girls, I mean, their lives are ruined. Their families' lives are ruined. I mean, the hopes and dreams of their parents. And, and your parents, I'm a parent. I mean, all, you have all these wonderful hopes and, you know, something like this just shatters all that. So. Yeah, that was a that was another theme you were dealing with with the book on both multiple levels was the death of a child. Oh, that yeah. that's yeah. that's difficult to read. Yeah. How are you, how did you get into that and and yeah. pull that in yeah. here? Yeah, thankfully my wife Kathy and I did not have that personal experience, but we know of people who've had um and um some of them fell apart. Some of the marriages fell apart and they went elsewhere. Um, and I did research on that, too, just looking up um, the, the, the consequences and the success rate or lack thereof of, of, of mending their, you know, their marriage. And it, it's, it's quite low. Hmm. And there's always a bizarre finger pointing is blamed in some somehow. And because Kirk was going to meet his daughter, Megan, on a bike path. And he got caught in traffic, you know, et cetera, et cetera. She decided to cross the street without him. And, you know, and um, even that is thrown in his face after a while. I mean, you're constantly looking for what is that magical reason why this happened? You shouldn't have been, you should have been there kind of thing. And even though it's irrational, it's human nature. And um, that was also kind of disturbing stuff to do research on, too. I mean, yeah. I, you know, getting transcripts of parents who broke up and, and you know, sobbing yeah. because, you know, and and there's also a kind of a grief creates a kind of a claustrophobia. So breaking up just kind of opens up opens the window a little bit and mm. it goes separate you know. That that idea of wanting somebody to be accountable or responsible and wanting to point the finger yeah. you know, we see that throughout this book where, you know, um this this um girl, a Slovakian girl, Lulu is in this treehouse and there's a kerosene lantern up there. And why did you let her have a kerosene lantern? But, you know, we also hear stories of, you know, Kirk and his partner who had, I think, been shot. And, you know, um, you know, his daughter had had uh, been the victim of a hit and run. And so we, we see all of these things where somebody could potentially be responsible or we want, you know, as human beings, we want someone to, to be the one who's like, I did it. You know, we, we want, <laughs> and I just think that's right. very, right. it's a very yeah. human thing, but I noticed that yeah, as sort of, of a thread throughout the book. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. There, we want a big, simple answer you mm. know, to something that's not big and simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'd be nice to pin a blame on somebody. So it's a, uh, and we're always looking for that, but it's 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 elusive. <laughs> it really is in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then also the idea that you know, the, the marriage, Kirk's marriage, um, is key to this story. It's key to who he is, and mm-hmm. he he talks about you know what keeps him from. Um, you know, breaking apart essentially, and it's part in, right. in part is his marriage to his wife Olivia, and he calls him this composite, and so um, and then their child is probably part of that composite, and then you know the composite starts breaking up, and mm-hmm. um, that that idea of the instability there, and how you you try to to live through that, and yeah, it yeah. feel his his day to day life feels pretty tenuous to me, at least yeah. you know. In, in the early pages of the book in particular, maybe the first yeah. half of the book. Yeah, uh, and he goes home to an empty house and mm-hmm. yearns for <laughs> the old days. Yeah, yeah. In the in the next book, Heat of the Moment, um, we don't have a public publication date yet on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said early, I've got... I, <laughs> one of the bugaboos about about writing a series, you have to keep on coming up with more baggage each one. He gets down <laughs> 10 books on one. <laughs> <laughs> So the next one is, do we have another child? 
And she's 42 and says, oh, I got you know, nature against mm-hmm. me there. And he says, no, you haven't. Mm-hmm. And will we forget about Megan? No, we won't. Uh, and, and, and so there, it, this becomes a back and forth. Um, I won't you know, give it away because this book's not yet published. But, it, you know, that becomes the issue. I don't know what the following one would be, but the, the third one, but I'll come up with something. But, yeah, I mean, um, I want to keep these two people together because mm-hmm. – um, I think they work well to each other, but they always will have some differences, which would hopefully can make some interesting kind of baggage uh, down the line, books down the line. Yeah, I love that, um, though. I feel like there was a lot in this book I could personally identify with. And you just brought up another thing. I had my second child at 41. So <laughs> I'm like, oh, I know exactly what that. You have, you have a child at 41? Yeah, yeah. I had, uh, I had my son at 39 and my daughter at 41. So... You look about like 27 now. Well, Gary, you're my best friend now. Thank you. (laughs) That's extraordinary. Yeah, but I I can definitely relate to those conversations and those feelings around that. You know, I was, you had me thinking back to high school. Um, We had a couple of German exchange students who we were friends with and had a great time. Nothing (laughs) bad happened there. But yeah, there was just, there was a lot in the book. Um, that I felt like yeah. I could identify with. And I love that you're, you're bringing up that you're already making this into a series, which is yeah. cool. I, I had read it as, as part of your work in writing instruction um, that you were saying making something into a series is a great, um, would you say, like sales technique or, or why series? Um, because publishers want series. Um, okay. What you folks have been doing for a long time, focusing on a particular detective, male or female, mm-hmm. and you're enamored of that person, the Perry Masons from Earl Stanley Gardner, um, of, um, you can't see it over my shoulder, but there's a photograph right about there. Oh, yeah. Uh, my first office mate at Northeastern was Robert B. Parker. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, probably Spencer novels and, yeah. and Sonny Randall and Jesse Stone. Um, and, um, his his Spencer became enormously popular. He did fifty books, I think, with him, uh, and so it, it's a um, a trophy for a publisher to have a mystery writer whose character is kept on and, and, and something clicks into the readership, you know, um, uh, preferences and and uh, uh, wanting to spend time with you know Poirot or you know. Right. Uh, uh, I am mean, Lou Archer, or, um, and some of the others of the, my contemporary uh, So that is what it was. It was a contract that said, "Would you please turn this book into a series?" I said, yeah, yeah, sure, I can do that. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the challenge is it, both a challenge and a curse. Uh, uh, the, the the good part is that uh, you, you have a same small cast of characters, and you can recycle and do things with them. The other is. Um, you get, might get bored with them and <laughs> you have nothing much else to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I can see how three-dimensional your detectives are, where in some of the older mysteries that we've been reading, you know, there's there's a million Sherlock Holmes novels or Hercule Poirot novels, but right. they don't have a, like, a very compelling backstory, if any at all, that we find out in most of the books. They're just kind right, of, right. they're kind of clever and and yeah, uh, they yeah. come in and do yeah. their thing, but you don't find right. out much about where they came from. Right, right. I mean, I think you probably, it, I find it interesting that uh, Sherlock Holmes took cocaine or something, took mm. some kind of drug. Sure, <laughs> sure. I always wanted to read more about that. And see what... Yeah, it was a very, like, <laughs> fin de siècle sort of uh, thing that was going on there where he's really just sort of jaded and then finds ways to get sort of engaged in the world again and that's one of them one of them in detection of course another violin playing and and so forth um there's there's so many ways writers can approach creating a care you know a set of characters for a series and i'd love to know yours are you i mean did you get to know everything you could possibly know about these characters out of the gate or did you learn certain things about them and then as you continue writing books you're learning more and more as you go yes yes mm-hmm. um and and that brings up the question of uh, of technique i mean when i first started writing i would outline and i would give a character profile of each character and early on i had like 
90 single page, single space pages of an outline. And I said, come on, Gary, three of those, you got a book. (laughs) This is avoidance behavior. (laughs) And about a third of the way through, I would detour in a different direction. It had nothing to do with the outline. So what I do now is I I kind of give a very, I, I, I get plot point bullets. So I get to find something of an arc. And then I come up with good guys and bad guys and try to imagine motives of of each why a person would kill another person and hopefully come up with some really interesting motives something they want to cover up in their own lives um and then i just jump in in a dark and stormy night and see where it takes me you know (laughs) and um but i do know in each chapter i bullet the surprises and developments of that particular chapter. So I, I, I fulfill something that I pre-thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I go down the line, you know, um, hopefully I have the confidence that the next chapter will follow. And, and um, yeah, and I know that I sometimes write in there, flesh out or more and big red you know, letters, <laughs> you know, develop this. But I know it's, there's a gap there that I've got to fill. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, sometimes describe the person's looks. I mean, it's have described, um, but I know that these are the motivating factors, and then I just got to you know, protract them so they make some kind of sense in an actual book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And so, it's, it, no, go ahead. It, it's, it's a black box. I mean, I really don't know. <laughs> I can't keep you nice and think how it happens. I mean, mm-hmm. thankfully still there when I come back in the morning. <laughs> yes. Um, so, and, and you know, your two main characters, or your, you have a main character, Kirk, and then uh, maybe, you know, also, also sort of a main character, secondary character, Mandy. Yeah. And with these characters, because they're going to be in a series with each book, they start somewhere and then we want them to, to change in some way over the story. And how do yeah. you see these two characters having changed or evolved by the end of the book? Uh, being sadder and wiser. Hmm. Um, I think that's really, I, I, um, at the end, uh, they're sad from the horrors of what they were investigating in the uh, outer quest. And they're wiser about themselves. They have made concessions. Um, uh, Mandy, in the next book, uh, well, at the end of this particular book, Rumor of Evil, uh, she will be having, she'll be with a child, and she's going to give birth uh, by the next book. And that is a, a, a fulfillment for her. I mean, she found the people who did the bad things to Lulu, um, so that has some satisfaction, and she's wiser and sadder for that, and yet she's got to be rewarded with a baby, which he's been hoping to have, you know, down the line. So, um, I want, you know, the, um, you want the book stuff to end almost in an archetypal way. You've cleared the dark stuff away and set up a relatively new order, a new beginning at the end. Um, and so that that is that's almost Shakespearean. In fact, it's almost like it goes back to ancient Greek comedies. You know, mm-hmm. it, you end up having a meal at the end to celebrate good things that finally happened. We're all back home now. You know, maybe lost somebody and we're, we're we're limping, but you know, good things are have been restored for a brief moment. Yeah. And that's the difference between life and literature. Literature has to make sense. You know? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, so. that kind of brings me to some questions I had about transitions in your life um as well a couple on the top of my head it it sounds like you know maybe your prior books focused on medical thrillers whereas you're kind of moving more into police detective work now can you talk about that transition a little bit sure 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 well you have a degree in physics yes i want to talk about that too (laughs) (laughs) and 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 same here and i applaud you for it because I, I I have never regretted having that, even though in this second year in, in college, I decided that I can do much better with words than I could with <laughs> subatomic particles. <laughs> um, when I um, 
what I got out of that is I, and particularly because teaching at Northeastern University, you have a, a university of all these different departments and, you know, chemistry and biology and pre-med stuff. And um, I knew what my ignorance was, but I knew how to ask questions and get me from A to B and make me sound like I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> so, yeah. And so um, that, that science aspect, um, I use way back uh, in a book called Rough Beast. And I, was, that was, I think it came out under Gosh Garian. And um, I live in an area here that uh, a couple towns away, there was a company that was dumping carcinogens into the water and it just turned the whole town into a carcinogenic mm -hmm. swamp. And it was made into a famous movie uh, with the John Travolta civil action. Um, uh, and the... Um, I was interested in that, so I decided to have an all-American family have the water go bad and it affects a child. And so I got in, it, it, it causes endocrine system to go wild. So I, I, I turned that into a novel and it did quite well. And so the publisher back then said, give us more of the same. I said, give us more of the same, what? It was called rough beast. I mean, a rougher beast? <laughs> and he said, high concept. And I said, what's high concept? Something that has a broad appeal to the fantasies and fears of the readership. We're trying to sell books. <laughs> so um, he, uh, he said, use your science background and uh, come up with a, a uh, generating theme. And I taught science fiction for you know, 40 years. And the, the, the staple in each course was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is watch out what you wish for. So that became my kind of mantra. So um, the science got me into inventing uh, an elixir, having an anti-aging drug, uh, which is a fantasy every human being on the planet. Mm -hmm. And I had been to New Guinea on a diving expedition, and the, our host there was just one, one generation of the Stone Age. And I got him a Harvard T-shirt, and he was wearing a watch. And he brought us into his village. And his uncle was the village shaman, who had the experience of 60,000 years of rainforest medicine. Wow. He could go to the bush and point to what plant healed, what plant killed, plant killed. And I said, imagine, you know, uh, a plant that is highly rare that would keep you alive indefinitely. So that started the kind of the kind of scientific stuff and then uh, went through looking for high concepts and excellent gray matter, uh, boosting the intelligence of children who were who seem slow or are slow uh, because every parent wants the kid to be a, a brilliant genius and go mm. up and be happy. So and, and, and then my aunt was bumping down the staircase with um, with uh, Alzheimer's disease. And uh, I wrote a book about the, the potential cure called Flashback. So it was all these that were standalones that really demanding science because I never took a biology course in my life. So I had to do all this research. But the, so the, the, the ability to query somebody, an expert, you know, uh, helped out. Um, and, uh, and then um, the first cop, I, I, cop novel I, I did, Gray Matter, was one about boosting intelligence of children. Um, I kind of shied away from making that a theory because cop stuff I'm not familiar with. Uh, you know, you have to keep on talking to those who do it. And uh, that just seemed like too much work at the time. Um, so eventually I skated into this. And uh, when Tess Garrett and I did choosing, that became quite successful. He said, why don't you write a theory? And said, that's interesting. Yeah. And so she said, make sure you have a very strong female character in it, which is, <laughs> And that was told me way back many years ago. I mean, I, all I know is have strong female characters. I'm married to a very strong female character. <laughs> uh, she wouldn't get let me let me get away with anything less. So the that worked, and um, and that's what we're doing now. Doing, doing um, but I do have scientific stuff in the books too, and the mm -hmm. one that's coming up next. I, I like rounding it in stuff that I can do research on, because you know, I mean, um. Books should entertain as well as educate. And you think about it, thrillers and mysteries, and there's distinct we talk about these, are about secrets. Hmm. And um, 
you know, about, about how the FBI works, what autopsies are like, um, how, how Sidem is work. I mean, how, how CIA deals with the Russians. So you're, you're, you're learning this in these stories. And so having a little scientific stuff to teach the audience, um, pull the curtain back, you know, might be entertaining as well as educating. So, yeah. No. <laughs> well, this conversation has been amazing. <laughs> Yes, 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 and I still. <laughs> uh, no, we can, we can, we can add a question. I just want to know. I want to dig a little bit deeper, you know, as a fellow sure. fellow physics background person. And I liked what you said about words. Um, I've always considered myself more verbal than mathematical, but you know, there you go. Still got, <laughs> yeah, still got the bachelor's yeah. in physics. H- how did that transition work? And and mm-hmm. why did you? I'm just gonna. Actually, right, I, have, right. I have one more question after that. Then <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I I had two uncles. One was a metallurgist. One was a chemist. Oh, and uh, I was brought up in Hartford, Connecticut, which is only seventy five miles away from Worcester. Mm-hmm. And I got scholarships to go to Worcester Tech, Worcester Polytechnic Institute. Um, and uh, I wanted to be a nuclear physicist. And I was, I, I read science fiction by the pound as a kid, mm-hmm, so I wanted to make mm-hmm. rockets and take me to the stars. <laughs> so my sophomore year, I was editor of just about everything on campus, and I started a humor magazine, and I really enjoyed writing. And I did not enjoy uh, advanced thermodynamics and the electronics. And, and there, are, there are kids I went to school with who came from the Bronx High School of Science, can take apart an alarm alarm clock and make an atom smasher out of it. It was <laughs> far behind me. So I said, um, I started taking courses at Clark University down the road and Harvard University and other places to get an equivalent to a degree in English because I knew I wanted to write fiction. Hmm. And I knew the only way to learn how to write fiction was to learn how to read. And the only way to learn how to read was to get a PhD in English and teach other people's books <laughs> <laughs> because you plumb the depths of a book if you teach it. I mean, I had some of the novels I taught over the years wired. I knew everything about them. And I told my students over the years, my writing students, find an author or authors you want to grow up to write like. And look at their books the way a carpenter looks at a house. Look at the angles. Look how they get in and out of scenes. Look how in a, in a 10-inch patch of dialogue, you're able to distinguish two different characters, their voices, how they look, how they express themselves. Um, notice that the architecture of the book, you have an action scene followed by a reflection scene, and the reflection scene really fleshes out the character. The action scene is just you know taking the, the, the villain um, notice how each chapter ends on a kind of a cliffhanger. Imagine your reader at four o'clock in the morning. Oh, damn, I got to keep, I got to get the next chapter. I'm turning the pages, that kind of thing. Really study how these books are written. Don't just speed read for, for plot. Um, and, um, and I, that's, that is what I passed on. I hope to pass on to my, my writing students and, um, and I forgot the original question. I was oh, no, you actually went in like the perfect direction. I was asking about yeah. the transition out of physics, but my last question yeah, right, was right. going to pertain to, you know, what you were saying about read authors yeah. that you want to be like, since we, we are a book club podcast. Sure. I wanted to ask you, who, who are the authors in the mystery thriller genre and maybe what have been the most influential books on you? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I'm a, Bob Parker for dialogue. He, he wrote the, the, the best dialogue anyone ever known. I mean, you know, the Hemingway, Hemingway cross with Dashiell Hammett, but with sensitivity. <laughs> um, uh, Michael Connolly, uh, Dennis Lehane, uh, my old uh, co-author Tess Gerritsen, um, but also people who are not in the in the, um, the genre uh, of mystery and thriller. Louise Erdrich wrote a phenomenal book called. Roundhouse, which mm-hmm. I absolutely love, and she, she she's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, the British author Ian McEwan uh, wrote a terrific novel called um, um, uh, Children Play, uh, and um, Children Act, me, Children Act, and they influenced me in in different ways: the characterization, the language, 
um, the, um, the attention to details, um, and, and the, the way they had to develop a narrative thrust, you know, the, um, the, um, engineering of the syntax of their sentences. Start off with a noun and a verb, and, and all the predicate is back there. Don't start off with long participial phrases or adverbial <laughs> phrases. That slows stuff down, particularly in science scenes. And, and so all these little tricks, you know, don't use the passive voice. Um, and so that, I mean, I am, I am very gratified when a reviewer says, this was well-crafted. I really like the language. That goes right to my heart as an English teacher, you know. Um, and people say, oh, I, 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 you, you really fooled me on the mystery. That's, that's gratifying, too. But, uh, but if you go online, look at some of the reviews of some of the books. Oh, I guessed it in the third chapter who the bad guy was. <laughs> <laughs> but people want that, 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 that puzzle-solving quality, too. But mm-hmm. also readers want nicely written stuff. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I hope. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been a delightful oh, conversation. This is, oh, thank, this you. Is, thank you. Thank yes. you. Yeah, great. And, and I'm delighted you read the book. I'm really uh-huh. yes. always get that in <laughs> interviewers. And, and so I have one final question. I think it's sure. a quick one. Will yeah. we in this series ever find out who killed Kirk's daughter? I don't think so. Mm. I would make that, make that an open wound. Yeah. I mean, it would be hard. I want that oh, that loss to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, that humanizes them. And also, they reflect. I mean, I'm going to have scenes where they look at the pictures of the old days when you know, and and they've got a new baby now, so that makes it a little bit easier. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I, I don't. I don't think I'll, I'll get that person. Okay. And and. Yeah, so what, in a sense, too, you know? <laughs> I, I suspected as much, but I was just curious if that was yeah, yeah, going to be a, right. something that would come up in a later book, but yeah. Right, right, yeah. Keep that one open. <laughs> well, thank you for being such a lovely guest. The The thank book you. is Rumor of Evil, which is a great book. Uh, yeah. I read it literally in two days, and <laughs> uh, it, so it's a page turner, and uh, we highly recommend it. Yeah, it's out October 10th. And Gary, did you tell me it's uh, an Amazon selection for October? Yes, it, it was a, a selected just a few days ago. It's a selection of the, by the Amazon editors of the uh, one of the best mysteries of the being released in October, which is, as you know, it's a really a hot month. Everyone's getting ready for Yeah, it's the spooky the month. Yeah. yeah. Uh, congrat- <laughs> so congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much. And listeners, until next time, be sure to... Stay mysterious.